You're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. And we are off again. Hello, everyone. I'm Zoe, a professional game designer, and I'm here with my co-host, Mac, a PhD candidate at Purdue University, and we are weird medievalists who teach you how to adapt weird medieval stories into TTRPGs, novels, stories, whatever you want to create. We are here to help you do it. And today we are getting into Marie de France and fairy lore and short little stories like that because it's summer and I'm excited about it. Before we get into that, we do want to mention a cool, cool things, cool things that we have. Our regular listeners, you already know about these cool things, but we do also have a patron shout out to get to. And this week it is to Jonah White. Jonah, thank you so much for supporting our Patreon. That's how it's said in in England. I heard somebody say that in their natural accent and I was just so taken with it. Patreon. You're a, you're a, you're a patron. You're a patron of ours. Anyway, thank you, Jonah, for supporting the show as an anti-purveyance peasant of ours. And as a patron, you get wonderful benefits such as bonus episodes, bloopers, and exclusive TTRPG content that we craft and create just for you to put into all of your fun games. So do check that out if you are not a patron already. And of course, we also have our fantastic Discord, and you do not need to pay to play for that special honor. So come check out our Discord and all of the wonderful people that we have in our community. You guys are what keep us going. So check that out in our show notes. We also, of course, have our social. So if you want to reach out and find us, get in touch with us, give us some suggestions for upcoming episodes, things like that. You can do that. We've got our, I mean, we've got the Discord, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter, we've got Tumblr, we've got all the things. So look up the Maniculum, the Maniculum podcast, some variation therein, and you will find us. Honestly, if you Google Maniculum, we are basically the only result. That's why we picked the name. Once you figure out how to spell it, it's really, really, like, you can find it. It's kind of a toss-up, isn't it? yeah, yeah. (laughs) I always have to explain to people how to spell it, but once you've got that, it's easy to find. Once you get it, it's super easy to find. almost everyone uses the anglicized version and calls it a... A A manicule. A manicule. Yep. But anyway, you'll find us. (laughs) So please, please come and join the conversation. We'd, We'd love to have you there. But anyway, for today's conversation, I'm super excited to get into the lays of Marie de France. So, Zoe, who is Marie de France? That's a wonderful question, and I'm going to pull up the notes that I had that I forgot to do before we started. Let, let me load them. There we go. They're loading. Yes. Okay. So I, like, starting off, like, roll it back for a second because I really wanted to talk about some kind of fairy stories because summertime has always felt like a fairy season to me, you know, which like does a disservice to the other fairy courts of uh, autumn and and spring and winter and so on. Where does that seasonal thing come from, by the way? I think it has a lot to do, and this is me talking out of my ass, I might totally be wrong here, but I think it has a lot to do with like the wild hunt and being associated with different seasonal cycles. You know, like okay. the, the pagan calendar, not just the wild hunt, but, you know, like feast days and so on and so forth. And so you've got the spring equinox and then, you know, autumn, 
And you have the different pagan holidays that kind of went with all of those. All right, that makes it. See, I, I, it just struck me when you were saying that. Like, I've heard, like, summer court and winter court in, like, fantasy literature. Right. But I don't think I've ever seen it referenced in anything from before, like, the Victorian era. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that concept of it, seasonal fairy courts, I don't think that existed before that era. But different fairies would, like, come out during different seasons, you know? Okay. That's, that's how I kind of am reverse engineering that one. Future Mac here. I've done some preliminary looking around, and I don't think we can blame the Victorians for the summer court and winter court thing. So far as I can tell, this distinction dates back to the ancient year of 2002. It looks like it's an invention of 21st century urban fantasy. And the earliest example I can find is Jim Butcher's Dresden Files series. If anyone can find an example of these terms that predates the Dresden Files, please let us know, because I really don't like the idea that this concept that's permeated the modern conception of fairies is just a Dresden Files thing. To be clear, however, we can blame the Victorians for the Seely versus Unseely courts. That's probably them, again, as far as I can tell. Seely Court seems to date back to the early modern period as basically just another euphemism like fair folk. But the idea that there is a Seely Court and an opposed Unseely Court, I think that's Victorian. There does, however, seem to be some folkloric grounding for supernatural beings that are associated with particular weather or particular times of year or festivals that personify the changing of the seasons and that sort of thing. Though many of our sources for this folklore are also Victorian, and there's a reason that, for example, the Golden Bough isn't taken super seriously as a work of anthropology anymore. So frankly, it's a big question mark. We'll have to do more research. Maybe we'll come back to this in an articles episode later. One of these days we should do a special episode on, like, fairy lore. We should. And we'll get into that a little bit today. But, but otherwise. Because I feel like that's one of those things that, like, lots of people want to know about, but it's yeah. really hard to get, like, information that hasn't been filtered through Victorians. Popular culture. Yeah, Victorians, yeah. mostly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, how should you depict the Feywild, really? Like, that's a big question. So maybe we'll do, like, a, a Fey special soon. But anyway, consider this, like, the, the appetizer. It's a little charcuterie board of fairy lore, if you will. And like Mac was saying, the problem with this is that most fairy stories were really codified and written down as folklore in like the 18 and 1900s, like how the Brothers Grimm did it with those mm -hmm. those folk stories. And so fairies were conceptualized very differently in the Middle Ages compared to their industrial age counterpart and onward. And really, it wasn't until Tolkien, like, wrote The Hobbit and included elves as these like regal beings that they were kind of reconceptualized in that way. Because if you said like elf beforehand, people in that period would think of like the little Keebler elves, like a garden gnome. They're not thinking Tolkien elves, which we, right. I think that's come back. That's taken over the conceptual consciousness of, or the collective consciousness of what an elf is, you know? So yeah. And Tolkien's elves are like, specifically meant to evoke the fairies of medieval literature. Yes. 
The text I'm familiar with that most fits that model is Sir Orfeo, which we should also mm-hmm. do one of these days. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. We're going to see it a little bit in some of the lays today. We also pulled from a couple different like Nordic texts where there's like hill elves and dark elves and light elves and blah, blah, blah. So beyond that, yeah, there's this weird different conceptual idea of what fairies were in the medieval period versus like early modern modern i guess it's modern 18 1900s that's modern past the enlightenment we can see the foundation of fairies and fairy lore in some of the chivalric tales especially in the lay of marie de france which is what i will be reading through today and you might remember that we read a little bit of marie's work in our halloween episode from a few years ago the lay of bisclaver i guess yeah the werewolf I story bisclaver I don't know. The werewolf story. Bisclaverit? <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> so in case you missed that one, go back and check it out. It's a hoot. It's really fun because we also go into the Icelandic version of that story, which is even wilder because the guy does not turn into a wolf. He turns straight up into a polar bear and ends up in Syria. It's wild. So do check that one out. So in case you don't remember, here's a little bit of background on Marie and her lays. We don't actually technically know. This is going to be disappointing to a few of you. We don't actually know who Marie was, like which Marie of France this was. Surely there was only one Marie in France. Oh, obviously. That's not like that's a common name. Especially because she wasn't even in France. She was in England. She's Marie of France. France, yes. And yeah, so there's, there's several guesses on who she could be, but it was very, very likely that she was writing in England during the 12th century in the court of Henry II. She's definitely a lady of French nobility. She's writing in England. But more than that, you know, we don't really know. Was she an abbess? Was she a lady of the court? Like, uh, we're not quite sure. But she's up there in, in terms of nobility. And these lays are a mishmash of various traditions. So just like how the D&D universe is a blend of various mythologies and stereotypes, the nobility of France and England during the 12th century did the exact same thing to various stories and myths that they heard and kind of like collected over the years. And these lays are Breton lays, stories and songs sung by Breton minstrels that made their way into the French court and then eventually into the English court after the Norman conquest. And these lays are characterized by their use of Celtic fairy motifs, love and chivalry, along with their rhyming verse format. Now, some astute few of you might be picking up on something here. How did these French stories have Celtic folklore in them? Like, and then, and then they went back into England? Like, what, what is that? That seems like the transmission is going in the, like, the wrong order. And you would be correct. And the answer to this question is the Breton people themselves, because the Bretons came from the early Celtic Britons who lived in Cornwall and Wales before the Anglo-Saxons, for lack of a better term, came along and conquered England. I mean, we could just call them the early English. See, thank you. That's a much better term. I wasn't sure whether there was consensus yet on that. That's the one I usually hear. That's a good one. Okay, so the early English. Because the Britons are not the early English as we conceptualize them. Anyway. England was not called England until like the 6th century when right. the invasion happened. Right. Before then, it was just Britain. It was Britain. Right. So the Britons were conquered by the early English and 
they emigrated, the Britons emigrated into what is Brittany in modern France and became from the Britons to the Bretons. Uh, so that's an I to an E, basically, in spelling change. And they took their Celtic stories with them. And when those became integrated into that culture, they then were transmitted into the French court. And so then after the Norman conquest, they became integrated into the English court. There is a story I heard. I don't I don't have a citation for this. But there's a story I heard that when William the Conqueror slash the Bastard slash the Hand and a Half invaded England in 1066, he had in his retinue Breton minstrels who were singing stories of Arthur mm -hmm. because they could make the claim that since Arthur was Celtic and not English, they were retaking the country. Yep. Yeah. So are these stories actually English? And, you know, you can argue about this with the Mabinogian and blah, blah, blah. They're Celtic. They're Celtic stories. I would say they are... Written while in England, but in no <laughs> other sense are they English. Right. Because they're written by a French woman based on a Celtic tradition yep. in a French dialect. Yeah. Yep. Some of them were written in like a, a weird Middle English French dialect, like a French version of Middle English. Anglo-Norman. Thank I you. Was, I was just going to simplify that to a French dialect. That's fair. Anglo-Norman is the style of French spoken by the Norman conquerors of England. Of England, yeah. So it's not quite medieval French. It's not, you know, Middle English. It's this weird blip. It's very interesting linguistically. I don't know that much more about it, but I find it very interesting. So anyway, King Arthur is like associated with England and he's like the first king of England. He's not, he's Celtic. Yeah. If King Arthur came back today, the first thing he would do is conquer England and put London to siege. Yeah, basically. Because from his perspective, those are invaders. Yeah. If there was a historical figure, he could have been Roman as well. So that's an interesting, you know, tidbit there. Actually, if I recall correctly, he was it was the early English that Arthur was fighting in his original stories. Yes. So he'd probably be pissed that they won. Yeah. <laughs> and try to fix that immediately. Yeah. Anyway, Arthuriana has so many layers. There's there's a bunch there's a bunch going on there. Like you really do need a PhD to to peel them all back. But anyway, these Celtic themes blended into the fashionable entertainment for the nobility at the time which are these lays concerning chivalry and true love. And these works also inspired Chrétien de Troyes, who wrote extensive Arthuriana, thereby further complicating the Arthurian tradition. So you will see some of those themes coming through. These lays predate a lot of the King Arthur stuff, even though they kind of touch on some of it. So for those of you who are interested in King Arthur history, you've got kind of the Mabinogian first, and then you've got Marie, and then you've got Chrétien de Troyes, and then you've got Mallory, kind of in that chronological order. And Mallory is the only one of those people who are English. Yeah, yeah, that's true. For fuck's sake. And then, well, you've got Geoffrey of Monmouth. Where does he fall? I think he's pre-Chrétien. I think he might be pre-Marie. Yeah, he might be. Probably is. Anyway. There are a bunch of people who wrote about Arthur. They're, it would be a pain to make a list. Yeah. And some of them are from the from the Channel Islands between England and France. Yeah, that's true. Forget oh, his name. Wace, I think. Yeah. The guy. Yeah, I think you're right. Who's from like Jersey? Jersey. Old Jersey. Old Jersey. It's nice. It's nice there. Yeah. All right. So that's my little preface on 
Marie de France, because we don't actually know that much about her, but we do know about the Lays, so I wanted to get into that. And I've picked out four. She's written more than that. I'm also not going in order because I wanted to find the cool, interesting fairy ones. So that's what I did. There's a bunch of these online that you can find. Because it is such an old text, Project Gutenberg has a great version, which is the one that I will be reading through. Um, and it is the, the first one that we will be getting into is The Lay of Sir Lanfell or Lanval. All right, so I will jump into The Lay of Sir Lanfell. This text spells it L-A-U-N-F-A-L. You will also see it as Lanval, L-A-N-V-A-L. You might also see parallels with, what's his name, Lan in Wheel of Time, because that entire series is an Arthurian metaphor, if you weren't aware of that. You can see it through the names. Yeah, it's very, like, once you see it, it's incredibly obvious, but if you don't see it, it feels very mystical, and you're like, what are these strange names? Because it's all Arthuriana. Well, I've also never read it. That's, That's fair. Like, the first thing I ever learned about that series was... The author died before finishing it. So I was immediately like, well, obviously I'm not reading that. Because <laughs> you need to finish these things. Like, I know that someone else came in and finished it from his notes later. He or whatever, did. But I feel like it's not the same. And, and so to me, it's That's an incomplete fair. series. And I'm not going to get started on a series that, that will never be complete. I'm very impressed by your dedication to that. That's very impressive. I'm not sure whether to take that seriously or not. No, like, you want to see the author's work all the way through. And that's... That's really impressive. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, to Lanval. I'm going to jump between those two pronunciations just because it's easier. So here we go. I will tell you the story of another lay. It relates the adventures of a rich and mighty baron, and the Breton calls it the lay of Sir Lanval. King Arthur, that fearless knight and courteous lord, removed to Wales and lodged at Carillon on Usk. Since the Picts and Scots did much mischief in that land. You'll also notice that this version is not in verse. The original lays were in verse. I did find a modern English version that was in verse, but I felt that that was not necessarily true to the original text. And so I I chose the prose version also because it's way easier. And if I were to read lines of rhyming poetry for several hours, I was going to kill myself. So... You have to be incredibly good at what you're doing to translate something in verse into another language and keep it in verse. In verse. It's insane. It's very Well, I mean, you can do that if you're not very good at what you're doing, but you'll get bad work. Bad, yeah, bad poetry. It's it's very difficult to do right. Yes. And so it's easier to just just read the prose version. Exactly. So that's what I've chosen here. Also, because it's free, it's on Gutenberg. Check it out. Read along if you desire. So, Picks and Scots, Causing Mischief. For it was the want of the wild people of the north to enter the realm of Logris and burn and damage at their will. And at the time of Pentecost, the king cried a great feast. He, like, declared that there would be a great feast. And he gave many rich gifts to his counts and his barons and to the knights of the round table. Does England have counts? I don't think so. That's how this has been translated. I think lords and barons would be better. But, you know... I don't know what the original French is. I would be terrified to read medieval French, so I'm going to let that one lie. Actually, it doesn't matter if England has counts, because uh, as we just covered, Arthur isn't English. Yeah, he's not English. The, I don't think the, the ancient Celts had counts either. Uh, they, you know, important people of various ranks. Future Mac here. I did a little Googling. 
And I'm going to guess that what's happening here is that Marie de France is using a French title because she's French. And even though her audience is English, it's fine because apparently the Normans considered the English title Earl to be roughly equivalent to the French title Count. And according to Wikipedia, the female equivalent of Earl is actually Countess for this reason. So the Anglo-Norman audience wouldn't have seen anything unusual with there being Counts in Britain. I did check to see if the original said Count... I don't read Anglo-Norman, but we are only a couple sentences in, so finding the relevant word did not take long. And while it doesn't exactly say count, it does say... Mm, well, I don't know the Anglo-Norman pronunciation, and I can't anglicize this one because I'd just have to bleep it. But it looks very close to count, so I'm going to assume it's the same word, and I'm not going to put this one on the translator. Um, yes, yeah, so Arthur bestowed honors and lands on all of his servants, save for one. This lord, who was forgotten and misliked by the king, was named... Was called Maleficent. <laughs> Stop! Oh my gosh. And now we'll go into that sob story. <laughs> no, it was called Lanval. He was beloved by many of the court because of his beauty and prowess, and he was of high descent, though his heritage was off in a distant land. He was of the king's household, but since Arthur gave him nothing, he was too proud of mind to pray for his due, and had spent all that he had. Maybe he was off at tournaments. Yeah. Gambling away. He actually sounds very irresponsible. So he like he's he's from somewhere else. He just yep. likes hanging out in Arthur's court. Yep. And Well, he's part of the household. So he's like been brought in. He's decided to join a house, this household. Yeah. But, like, he spent all of his money, and he's not, like, made himself known sufficiently for the king to even remember him on, like, this kind of occasion. Apparently not. I feel like at this point, my guy, you should just, you know, this is a write-off. Call it a loss. Go back to your distant land. You would think so, you know. But Sir Lanfall became very sad when he considered these things. For he knew himself, and I love this phrase, he knew himself taken in the toils. <laughs> what does this <laughs> phrase mean? Like toiling as in like he's he's suffering at the moment. Ah, okay. He's been taken by the toils. <laughs> he's suffering endlessly. Gentles, as in like gentlemen and ladies, marvel not over much about this. I wasn't particularly marveling. This is this sounds like completely mundane so far. Um, but a knight in King Arthur's court? Poor? Wh whatever could this mean? But ever must the pilgrim go heavily in a strange land, where there is none to counsel and direct him in the right path. Now, on a day, that's the translation, not like on like that. a certain day or anything. I like that, on now, a day. <laughs> on a day that he, that he picked, Lanfall got on his horse that he might take his pleasure in the woods for a little while. He came forth from the city alone, attended by neither servant nor squire. He went his way through a green land. Well, he doesn't want anyone watching while he takes his pleasure. Yeah, it was quite the phrase. So he comes through this green land till he stood by a river of clear running water. Lanfall would have crossed the stream without thought of pass or ford, but he might not do so for a reason that his horse was fearful and trembling. Seeing that he was hindered in this fashion, Lanfall unbitted his steed and let him pasture in that meadow. 
where they had come. Then he folded his cloak to serve as a pillow and lay upon the ground. To summarize that for people who are maybe not acquainted with weird archaic turns of phrase, Landfall reaches a stream, and he's like, I'm just gonna go straight through, not gonna worry about whether this is a good place to cross, not gonna worry about how deep it is, I'm just gonna ride through it, and his horse Mm -hmm. won't do it, so he takes the bit out of the horse's mouth, and like he just gives up, and like, all right, graze on some grass for a bit, since apparently you're smarter than me about how to cross rivers. And then he decides he's gonna take a nap. (laughs) Yes, and then he takes a nap. Knights are so dumb. Every Arthurian story that we've ever covered, these knights are so dumb. So anyway, he's lying there in great misease because of his heavy thoughts and the discomfort of his bed in the meadow. And he turned from side to side, but could not sleep. Now, as the knight looked toward the river, he saw two damsels coming towards him, fairer maidens Landfall had never seen. These two maidens were richly dressed, in kirtles closely laced and shapen to their persons, and wore mantles of a goodly purple hue. They're really hot, is what it's saying here, and purple's a very rich, difficult fabric to get. Yes. Sweet and dainty were the damsels, alike in raiment and in face. The elder of these ladies, I don't know how you're telling this, but okay. The same way he can tell that they're maidens, like he just knows. (laughs) It's that youthful glow. It's their moisturizer, I swear. (laughs) So the elder of these ladies carried in her hands a basin of pure gold, cunningly wrought by some crafty smith. Very fair and precious was the cup, and the younger bore a towel of soft white linen. These maidens turned neither to the right nor to the left, but went directly to the place where Lonfall lay. Wait, they're hitchhikers. I know this. They know where their towel is. The most brilliant reference ever. Thank you. So when Lanfal saw that their business was with him, he stood up on his feet like a discreet and courteous gentleman. And after they had greeted the knight, one of the maidens delivered the message with which she was charged. Sir Lanfal, my demoiselle, as gracious as she is fair, prays that you will follow us, her messengers, as she has a certain word she would like to speak with you. We will lead you swiftly to her pavilion, for our lady is very near at hand. If you will but lift your eyes, you may see where her tent has been pitched. Also, they've got these pavilions. All these ladies have their pavilions. Yeah, we've seen this before. Like, you've got the elder maiden and the younger maiden, and they're in a pavilion. And now Lan Fall has to kill their ex-boyfriends. You know, (laughs) I, I would like my own pavilion here. How do I get on this pavilion kick? Am I not, like, lady enough? Do I need to be of, of noble birth? I don't, I don't know. Well, I think you need to live in a country where there's such thing as common lands. You know, that would do it. I'm pretty sure if you set up a pavilion anywhere in the U.S., you'd just get arrested. Probably. I guess you could get a permit, but I don't think they'd give you a permit for I want to sit here and wait for knights to come along so I can have <laughs> them kill people. I don't know, maybe in a public park. That's true, you could maybe do it in a public park. I think you might still have to get a permit to erect something, though. That's bizarre. Our country's so bizarre. Laws are bizarre. Anyway, alright. So, the knight was glad to do this bidding, and he gave no heed to his horse, but left him to graze in the meadow. At least the author remembers the horse exists. Sometimes they don't. I know, yeah. So all his desire was to go with the damsels to that pavilion of silk of diverse colors, pitched in so fair a place. Certainly neither Sir- I'm gonna butcher this word. I know it's a person. You're going to recognize it. Semiramis? Oh, 
Uh, you know, I don't know how to say that either. All I know is like she's she's like an ancient queen. She's the daughter of an Assyrian goddess who married an Assyrian king. And she ruled for like, she's like one of the founders of Babylon, essentially. Yeah. So certainly neither Semiramis in her days of most wanton power, nor Octavian, nor the emperor of all the West had so gracious a covering from sun and rain. Above the tent was set an eagle of gold, so rich and precious that none might count the cost. This is a leftover thing from Rome where their symbol was an eagle. Yeah. The cords and fringes thereof were made of silken thread, and the lances which bore aloft the pavilion were of refined gold. No king on earth might have so sweet a shelter, nor though he gave in fee the value of his realm. It's so expensive, you could sell your whole kingdom for this and nobody could afford it. This pavilion is worth an entire country's GDP somehow. Yes, essentially. It's that nice. So Lanfal enters this pavilion, and then we get... We get the uh, description of the lady, which I won't be able to take seriously, but here we go. Whiter was she than any altar lily, and more sweetly flushed than the newborn rose in time of summer heat. She lay upon a bed with napery. I'm, I'm sorry, so she's, she's extremely pale, but she has a sunburn. Yeah, flushed. She's not sweating, she's glowing. She's flushed. She's got her beautiful little coverlet on, and, um... Very fresh and slender showed the lady in her vesture of spotless linen, so she's wearing a white sundress. About her person, she had drawn a mantle of ermine edged with purple dye from the vats of Alexandria. By reason of the heat, her raiment was unfastened a little, and her Why did you bring a fur mantle? Because <laughs> she has to look really hot. Actually, you know, I do see people going around in those like half sweater things in the middle yeah. of summer, so maybe it's maybe it's the same thing. Yeah, it's like, like a crop that seems top. like a really similar clothing item, actually. Crop top hoodie sort of vibe. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. All right. And so all right. she's she's unfastened it a little bit, you know, to for the the you know side boob of it all. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Hang on. Oh, okay. Her throat and the rondure of her bosom showed whiter and more untouched than a hawthorn in May. Are you sure that's that's not just cleavage? The rondeur, the roundness of her bosom. She's yeah, got okay. tasteful. She's got tasteful side boob going on. All right, I'll take your word for that. The knight came before the bed and stood gazing on so sweet a sight. The maiden beckoned him to draw near, and when he had seated himself at the foot of her couch, then she slapped him for staring too much. She did invite him in. I know, but still, like yeah. once it's like, and he was gazing on the side. I'm like, is he doing it respectfully? Is he respectfully gazing? Yeah, exactly. Lanfal, she said, fair friend, it is for you that I have come from my own far land. I bring you my love. If you are, I just can't take this series. I forgot how wild these stories are. I bring you my love. If you are prudent and discreet, as you are goodly to the view. There is no emperor, nor count, nor king, whose day shall be so filled with riches and mirth as yours. Alright, look, if a gorgeous woman shows up and she knows your name inexplicably, you're being set up for something. Yeah. Like, she's she's gonna serve you papers, or she's, like, part of a sting operation. Like, you, you gotta get out of there, man. However, Landfall responds, Fair lady... Since it pleases you to be so gracious, and to dower so graceless a knight with your love, there is naught that you may bid me to do, right or wrong, evil or good, that I will not do to the utmost of my power. 
I will observe your commandment, my lady, and serve in your quarrels. For you I renounce my father and my father's house. This I only pray that I may dwell with you in your lodging, and that you will never send me from your side. Tips Fedora. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, that is basically what as a knight you're supposed to do. So yeah. in the modern age, this comes off as like, yeah. but in in the context of a chivalric romance, that's basically like the expected script. Yes. I give you my love. Okay, I give you my everything is yeah. essentially how it's going. When the maiden heard the words of him whom so fondly she desired to love. Why? She was altogether moved and granted him forthwith her heart and her tenderness. To her bounty. (laughs) Did she now? That's what it says. I haven't read this one since undergrad. So this, I I did not remember how ridiculous this. this, I see. I read these stories initially in seventh grade. I was 13 when I read this for the first time. Okay, did you do that, like, on your own, or was it assigned to you? It was a part of class. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of this being part of a, like, pre-college curriculum. It's very strange that it was. Thinking back, I think the reason that I don't remember how ridiculous this was, I read it as part of a medieval literature course, and I think we read it in Middle English. So oh, I had a very different experience why. of the language. Yes. That, see, that makes a lot more sense because when you translate it into modern English, but you keep some of the like archaic parts of it, it reads very strangely. All right. So Landfall would not be desirous of anything and would have everything according to his wishes. He might waste and spend at will and pleasure, but there was ever something in his purse. Wait, 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 wait. Is this like an agreement she's setting before him? What's going on? Last I heard, she was opening her tenderness. Oh, yes, sorry. To her bounty, she added another gift besides. So she's she's going to, like, give him money? She's his sugar mama. I mean, look, if, if you can get that kind of arrangement, like, go for it. I, yeah, yeah. I don't know why you picked Lanval, of all people, but all right. That's the question I have here, really, is what is her motivation? Yeah. Well, let's find out, shall we? So, no more was Landfall sad. Right merry was the pilgrim, since one had sent him on the way. The lady sent him on, on his way with this gift. And the more pennies he bestowed, the more silver and gold were in his pouch. But the maiden had one more thing to say. Hearken to my counsel, friend. I lay this charge upon you and beg you urgently that you tell no man, any man. Man is in mankind here, I'm presuming. I guess we're going to find out. The secret of our love. If I show you this matter, you will lose your friend, me, forever and a day. Never again will you see my face. Never again. Oh, what is this word? Ah, I see. Never again will you have possession of this body, which is now so tender in your eyes. The word is Sasin, which is possession of land by freehold. Oh, is it footnoted? No, I, I looked it up. Oh, that was quick. Yep. It comes from the word, like, to seize. Okay, okay. So, no more sex. You won't ever see me again if you tell anybody about this. Lanfall plighted faith that right strictly he would observe this commandment. So the maiden granted him her kiss and her embrace, and very sweetly in that fair lodging they passed the day until evening had come. And loath was Lanfall to depart from this pavilion at Vespers, and would gladly have stayed had he been able, and had his lady wished it. 
Fair friend, said she, rise up, for you may tarry no longer. The hour has come that we must part. But I have one thing to say before you go. Whenever you would speak with me, I shall hasten to come before your wish. Well, I deem that you will call your friend where she may be found without reproach or shame of men. You may see me at her pleasure. My voice shall speak softly in your ear at will. But I must never be known to your comrades, nor must they ever learn of my speech. So what is she saying here? If he calls on her, she will come, but he the rule is that he cannot call upon her where they will ever be caught, essentially, or that she will ever be seen by anyone around. Don't tell your friends about me. Don't call me on my home phone. Yep, yep. This is this is a secret dalliance. Right joyous was Lawnfall to hear this, because he he's not thinking about like, oh, that's a little sus that, you know, I can't show her to my friends and like hang out with her and my buddies. Oh, the only thing he's thinking is, oh, whenever I want, whenever I want, I can have this lady here. That's what he's thinking. You can kind of see it. Like if he's making the, what I would say is the, well, maybe not in his era, but in this era, the reasonable assumption would be like, oh, she wants me to be like a side piece. Right. But she's going to give me money and companionship. So like, that's fine. Like, that's I'm not going to make a fuss about this. It's a chill gig. Yeah. Yeah. So he sealed this covenant with a kiss and stood upon his feet. And then there entered the two maidens who had led him to the pavilion, bringing with them a rich raiment fitting for a knight's apparel. And when Lanfall had been clothed therewith, there seemed no goodlier varlet under heaven. That is to say, like, he looked super nice, super hot. And after these maidens had refreshed him with clear water and dried his hands upon the napkin, Lanfall went to meat. That is to say, he, he went to eat meat. He went to eat dinner. Meat is one of those words that's actually gotten, it's undergone a semantic narrowing process. It used to just mean food, mm -hmm. but over time it's come to mean specifically, well, meat. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of words in English like that. For example, this is my favorite example. The word deer, like the hoofed the creature, used to just mean any animal, which means that there is an old English text that says very confidently, a tiger is a sort of deer. <laughs> I love that. It's great. I'm sure I've brought that up on the podcast before, but I never get tired of it. You have, and you should continue to bring it up. It's the best. Okay, so anyway, he's going to meet. He's eating. His friend, that is to say, the lady, the fairy, whoever this is. I like that she also gave him like a new outfit. She's like, and put this on for me. <laughs> it's nice and tight. Yeah, you know, mm. His friend sat at table with him, and small will had he to refuse her courtesy. I hate this sentence. Very serviceably, the damsels bore the meats. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is a sentence, isn't it? It's so bad! And Landfall and the Maiden ate and drank with mirth and contentment. I feel like that should be, like, a slogan for... <laughs> some kind of business in the sex industry, I feel like. <laughs> Or just hooters. Yes! Actually, that would fit exactly. Very seriously, do our damsels bear you the meats. <laughs> like, stop. The new medieval times slogan. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, anyway. But here we get, we get a great phrase, so. But one dish was more to the knight's relish than any other. Sweeter than the dainties within his mouth was the lady's kiss upon his lips. 
Oh, that's a, that's, that's kind of nice, actually. Yeah, yeah. When supper ended, Lanfal rose from the table for his horse stood waiting outside of the pavilion. How? I figure the ladies got it for him. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. It was newly saddled and bridled, and showed proudly in his rich gay trappings. Gay meaning happy. Old term. I mean, we're not going to assume the sexuality of this horse, so it could be both. It could be both, yeah. Well, but it, it's describing the trappings. Maybe they're rainbow. True. I'm going with that. Landfall's going back with his new tight apparel and rainbow gear on his horse. Yeah. So Landfall kissed and bade farewell and went his way. He rode back towards the city at a slow pace, and often he checked his steed, that is to say, like, slowed his steed down, and looked behind him, for he was filled with amazement and bemused concerning this strange adventure. In his heart he doubted that it was but a dream. He was altogether astonished and knew not what to do. He feared that the pavilion and maiden alike were from the realm of fairy. I mean, honestly, I feel like he's got his head on straight for like the- The first time. Yeah. Yeah. Or possibly the first time. Like, like he leaves and he's like, wait, did that happen? Was mm-hmm. that a dream? Am I being like haunted by something? Yes. Is something supernatural going on? This is smart when you're in Camelot. Yeah. Because, like, that did come out of nowhere, and there were a lot of weird elements, like the fact that she knew his name. So, starting to ask questions like, did that happen, and if it happened, was that magic reasonable? Also, I want to call out here that this kind of adventure harkens back to some of the Irish sort of adventure stories that we've talked about. I think some of our early episodes kind of go into this where a guy goes into the woods, meets a challenge, usually, or meets a fairy and undergoes some adventure or has to make a promise or XYZ. So this is one of those very clearly Celtic motifs coming through. You'll remember this in the story of I think there were some other ones that we talked about. But this is one of those motifs. We also see it in Fedelm a little bit in mm-hmm. the Toyn, where Kukulun's walking along and comes across this bug-eyed fairy woman. She's not a fairy, she's a prophetess, but same sort of vibe. So this is very familiar to the Celtic tradition. Also, it should be noted that like nowadays we have our own definition for adventure, but I think that's actually mostly shaped by how the word is used in chivalric romance. Yes. Because originally, or at least it's borrowed from French, but when it was originally borrowed into English, it just meant a thing that happened. Yeah. Like there was not any like, and it was exciting. Like that's not an implication there. It's just an event. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Lanfell returned to his lodging, clad no longer in ragged raiment and was greeted by his servants. He fared richly, lay softly and spent largely, but never knew how his purse was always filled. There was no lord who had need of lodging in the town, but Lanfall brought him to his hall for refreshment and delight. Lanfall bestowed rich gifts, redeemed the poor captive, he clothed in scarlet the minstrel. He gave honor where honor was due. Stranger and friend alike he comforted at need. So whether by night or day, Lanfall lived greatly at his ease. His lady, she came at will and pleasure, and for all the rest, all was added unto him. So he, like, instead of being an with all his wealth he's kind of being a cool dude yeah i was just thinking like at least he's spreading it around you know he's not just keeping it for himself and his buddies he's giving it to like strangers and whoever needs it that's that's good good that's really cool yeah 
Now it chanced in that same year about the Feast of St. John, a company of knights came to an orchard beneath that tower where dwelt the queen. This is Guinevere. Together with these lords went Gawain and his cousin, Yvain the Fair. I hate it that it's Gawain and Yvain. I, I hate it. I love it, Doesn't but I hate it. Gawain also have brothers named Agravain and Geharis? Like, this is just a thing. I think like, so. all of his family are easy to confuse with each other. Yeah, it's pretty rough. Apologies to the fourth Orkney brother, Gareth, whom I left out, but who does continue the trend of either rhyming or alliterating with his relatives. Then said Gawain, that goodly knight, beloved and dear to all, Lords, we do wrong to disport ourselves in the plaisance without our comrade Lanfal. It is not well to slight a prince as brave as he is courteous and of a lineage prouder than our own. So basically, like, hey, where's Landfall? He's not here. Yeah, we should invite Landfall. Yeah. He's always giving people money. He seems great. Let's get him in on Let's this. go get him. Wears very tight clothing for some reason. <laughs> He's under contract. Yeah. <laughs> then certain of the lords, that is to say, a few of these lords, returned to the city and finding Landfall within his home entreated him to take his pastime with them in the meadow. The queen looked out from a window in her tower, and she and three ladies of her fellowship. They saw the lords at their pleasure, and Lanfa also, for whom well they knew. So the queen chose of her court thirty damsels, sweetest of face and most dainty of fashion, and commanded that they should descend with her to take their own delight in the garden. Hold on. Is it saying that in general, the queen's damsels are sweet of face and dainty of fashion, or that she like lined them up and were like, okay, you 30 are the sweetest in face and most dainty in fashion. You go out there. I think it's saying that of all the women, the ones in the court are sweetest of face and most dainty of fashion. Okay, so she's not like picking them. I don't think so, For these so, attributes. No. no. I mean, she may have when she hired them, but not in this right, particular Right, but not, not in this moment, no. Yeah. So she wants her maidens, like her little court, to go out into the garden as well, because it's such a pretty day and all the knights are out. When the knights beheld this gay company of ladies come down the steps of the perron, they rejoiced beyond measure. They hastened to lead them down by the hand and said such words in their ears that they were seemly and pleasant to be spoken. I'm sure they were. Sir Landfall was not among these lords who hastened to the young women. He drew apart from the throng, for... With him, time went heavily till he might have clasp and greeting of his friend. He's like longing for his lady because she, she can't be there and that's their rule, blah, blah, blah. And so the ladies of the Queen's Fellowship seemed but kitchen wenches to his sight in comparison with the loveliness of, this ma- of his maiden. Unnecessary slam on kitchen wenches. Like, come on. Yeah kind of rude but like i sort of get it because when you're in the kitchen you do not look pretty you are not like all dolled up like you're not a it's not like a wench it's not a slam on like women who work in kitchens being ugly it's just that when you are in the kitchen you are not dolled up i guess if that's the kind of look he likes then yeah okay fine like that's how i'm choosing to read it but whatever when the queen marked landfall off on his own she went his way And seating herself upon the herb, that is to say, like, the grass, the lawn. No, she's got a chair made out of rosemary and mint. I guess, who knows. She called the knight before her, and she opened out her heart. Landfall, I have honored you for long as a worthy knight, and have praised and cherished you very dearly. Unlike my husband, if you'll remember. 
That's my note. Hey, your majesty, why didn't you remind your husband to give me a gift at that that event then? Thanks, Gwen. Or have you only just noticed me since I started throwing money around? Yeah, right? You may receive a queen's whole love, if such should be your care. Be content. He to whom my heart is given has small reason to complain him of the alms. Like, I will also offer you money if you're my sugar baby, is is what she's saying. She's making a very similar offer. Yes. Lady, answered the knight, let me go. Let me get out of here. I don't want this. I am the king's man and dare not break my troth. Not for the highest lady in the world. Not even for her love will I set this reproach upon my lord. He's like, I am not going to cheat on you, on, on King Arthur with you. I am not. He's like, I'm not Lancelot. Thanks. Like, look, that's a very nice offer. But like the amount of drama that could come from that is just absolutely no. Yeah, absolutely not. And the queen was full of wrath and spoke many hot and bitter words toward him. Lanfall, she cried. Well, I know that you think little of women and her love, of women in general, and also of her and her love. There are sins more black that a man might have upon his soul. Traitor you are and false. Right evil counsel they gave to my lord who prayed him to suffer about you, his person. You remain only for his harm and loss. Now, let me break this down for you, because this is written in a very weird way. Did she just basically say, do you even like women? Yes. Yep. She's like, oh, you don't want me? You must be gay. And my husband shouldn't have a gay in his court. That's what she's saying. You're a weird queer foreigner who won't cheat on me, and I'm bitter about it. Is she aware of how the other knights talk to each other? Yeah, but I mean, if you only give it homoerotic undertones, it's not that gay. (laughs) If it's the Christian kiss, it's not gay. Bro, bro, it's not gay if it's just undertones. (laughs) Uh, But yes, so essentially she she calls him gay because he won't sleep with her, which is gross no matter what century you're in. Yeah, fair. Landfall was very sad to hear this thing. He was not slow to take up the queen's glove, and in his haste, spake words that he repeated long and with tears. This is like throwing of the gauntlet is what this is referring to. So to take up like the queen's glove is to like pick up the gauntlet that she has thrown. Mm -hmm. She's challenging him. No literal glove involved. Yeah. It's a metaphor. But that's what they're referring to here. Lady, said he, I am not of that guild which you speak, which there's a guild for the queers? Man, there should be. Count me the f*** in. (laughs) Alright, I am not of that guild which you speak. Neither am I a despiser of women, since I love and am loved by one who would bear the prize from all the ladies in the land. Dame, know now and be persuaded that she whom I serve is so rich in state that the very meanest of her maidens excels you, Lady Queen. As much in clerky skill, as in goodness, as in sweetness of body and face, and in every virtue. Okay, there are three things I want to try and note here. Yep. Okay, first, he's just broken the rules. He's not supposed to tell- Like, I know he didn't say her name or anything, but I think that even just saying that there is a lady is against the rules. Uh, Strike one. Second- I want to go back to the guild thing. Like, fascinating that this is a well-known enough thing that they mm-hmm. refer to it as a guild. As a group. Yeah. They're like, this is a demographic that we're aware of. That yeah. at least metaphorically are in some way, like, coordinating, I guess? 
Or something. Like, in order to be, for there to be a guild, there has to be at least some kind of, like, mutual recognition, some solidarity. Yeah. yeah. And if it, even if it's not, like, because I don't think it's a literal guild. No, it's probably, no, but a metaphorical but it's a group. one. It's a group, right? Like, they're, they're recognizing that this is, this is a group of people. It's interesting that that is acknowledged. <laughs> we would say queer community. They would say guild of, I don't know. Florentines? Florentines. Sure. We'll go with that. I don't think Past Mac is articulating himself very well, so what I meant to say is, while obviously the guild thing is a metaphor, I'm sure there's no formal organization of any kind, it's interesting that he recognizes the existence of a community. Like, his choice of metaphor is indicating that the author doesn't think of this as, like, just a behavior, but as a community that you can be part of. And that's not something you see often in medieval texts. So it's worth highlighting. Third thing, clerky skill. Yes, like knowledge. Okay, so you know how like in the in the 40s and 50s, women could be secretaries, but they really couldn't be much more. They could be also computer programmers in that era, but yes. Right, but they were- For the same reason. Looked down on, right, yeah. yeah. So they had clerky skill. It's sort of the same thing in this period where women could be educated, but they would not ever be as educated as men. Right. So I but, think this is what that's referring to is like clerks, like- Okay, yeah, but but clerky? That's what's written! <laughs> like I'm, I'm actively scrolling through to try and find this. It's clerkly hand, clerkly skill, which is oh. like a horrible word to pronounce. That's a little better. That there's a, that there's an <laughs> L in there. Yeah, it's pretty rough though. Yeah. All right, that's all I got. You may carry on. All right. So anyway, the queen runs out crying. Not even kidding. She runs out crying, and she's real. She's real mad because she's been besmirched. And she lay sick upon her bed, from which she said she would never rise until the king had done her justice and righted this bitter wrong. And now the king that day had taken his own pleasure within the woods. I hate this phrase. Why are they using this phrase? It makes them all sound like they're constantly getting off. It really does, doesn't it's it? It's really bad. Like, they're taking, the, like, oh, like, I, ch- I choose to take my pleasure. I'm going to find the most pleasure in the woods. That's what it means. But it sounds so bad. Like, you could just say, like, what they're actually doing. Like, they're, well, I guess if they're just wandering aimlessly, there's kind of not much to say other than, like, they're enjoying the woods. Yeah. So anyway, the king's enjoying the woods. That's better. Yeah. And he returned from the chase. He went hunting towards evening. Okay, see, they could just say that. I know, but I guess we're not doing that. So anyway... He went and sought the queen, and when the lady saw him, she sprang from her bed and, kneeling at his feet, pleaded for grace and pity. <laughs> Landfall shamed me. That's a fantastic image. She, like, leaps out of her bed and lands <laughs> in a kneeling posture. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, what did she say? That's pretty good. <laughs> Landfall shamed me, is basically what she says. When she had... Put him by, very foudly had he reviled her, boasting that his love was already set on a lady, so proud and noble that her meanest wench was more richly and blah 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 than the queen. Landfall says he's got a lady who's better than me. Now, King Arthur gets mad here, and I'm a little bit confused as to why, because she basically says that she, you know, was gonna have an affair with Landfall. Oh, they've got an arrangement. 
They do. They do. This is true. This is true. I thought that was the whole thing, though, that, like, Lancelot got in trouble with, with Arthur because of their arrangement. I mean, I think that's correct, but I don't know. I always feel like they kind of know. Like they maybe, know. Maybe it only became a problem when it became public knowledge. Probably. And to be fair, this this legitimately does depend on what version of what story in Arthuriana you are reading, because sometimes it's very much like, oh no, no, we don't do this whole like polygamy thing. We don't do extramarital affairs. Like those are two distinct things. And then in other ones, it's like, oh yeah, whoever the queen wants to bone, she'll go bone. And I'm fine with that. I'm King Arthur. I'll go bone whoever I want to bone. And like, they have an arrangement. So depends on what you read. Polyamory, I think is the word you're looking for there. Yes. Polygamy is specifically multiple wives. Oh, f- yeah. Thank you. Yes, that is the correct word I was thinking of. I got them mixed in my brain. Oh, and the reason that the Lancelot thing isn't coming up in this story is because Lancelot has maybe been invented by this time, but like he's he's a Cretian original. Like, yeah. I think this this is about the same time period. So like he's he's not made his way into the rest of the stories no, necessarily. Not yet. Not yet. So anyway, the king gets very, very mad and swore a great oath that he would set Landfall on fire or hang him from a tree. I'm glad he did or. Be yep. hard to do and. Yep. So, Arthur came forth from the queen's chamber and called to him three of his lords. He sent these to seek the knight who had so evilly entreated the queen. And Landfall, for his part, had returned home, sad and sorrowful. I mean, like, look, to be fair, he was rude. And he was rude to the queen, which is like twice as bad. But also, this woman has a fragile ego. Come on. Yeah, it's pretty rough. He saw very clearly that he had lost his lady since he had declared their love to men. He does recognize this. like, And I, I understand this as part of the chivalric tale because he cannot let the slight that the queen has pushed upon him go unanswered. She threw the gauntlet. He, as a knight, has to answer it and has to protect the woman that he has sworn to protect. And in in doing so, has a great sacrifice. That is to say, he has to give up the lady that he has sworn to protect. Right. And unfortunately, his, like, defense was not great. Because basically what he said was, no, I'm not gay. I have a girlfriend in Canada and she's way hotter than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. She's real, you guys. I swear. <laughs> Yeah, she can't she can't leave Canada. She doesn't have a passport yet, but I swear. That's really sad, Landfall. Buddy. <laughs> Rip. Oh boy. Yeah. So like on the one hand, this is like the definition of true love because he is sacrificing what he loves for his love to protect her. And that's like the catch twenty-two of this story. I mean, is he though? Because it sounds like what he's doing is doing exactly what she told him not to do in order to defend his own honor so the queen won't think he's gay. Yeah, no, that's true too. Yeah, no. What a loser. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a 180 there. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was framing it the wrong way and then you corrected me and I'm like, oh, damn. I mean, that wasn't meant to be a correction, just an alternate perspective. I, true. I'm not saying your interpretation is invalid. I'm saying my interpretation. Well, it's one way that you could interpret it, but he is kind of a loser. He didn't really protect her at all. He felt compelled to, but that was an incorrect, not compilation. That was an incorrect whatever. 
Decision? I guess. Impulse? Impulse, thank you. You know, like to be compelled. It was the incorrect way to be compelled. Compulsion? Compulsion, thank you. All right. Yeah, it was the incorrect compulsion. So anyway, anyway. Yeah, Lanfo is real sad, and he's sitting in his chamber, and often he called to the lady, but she would not hear his voice, and he bewailed his evil lot. For grief, because of the grief, he came nigh to swoon. A hundred times he implored the maiden that she would deign speak with her knight. Then, since the lady had refrained from speech, Lanfall cursed his hot and unruly tongue. Very near he came to ending all of this trouble with a knife. He went full, like, nice guy. I mean, I guess he just lost, like, not only his girlfriend, but also his livelihood. Like, you can yeah. see how someone would have some suicidal ideation at this point. Yeah, that's fair. Not he found to do, but wring his hands and call upon the maiden, begging her to forgive his trespass and to talk with him again as friend to friend. Okay, now it's question. I was gonna say, I think, I think it's definitely nice guy behavior. Yeah, yeah. You broke her boundary... Because your ego was really weak, and you white-knighted me when I specifically told you not to. And now you're so sad that I won't talk to you because you broke my boundary, that you're threatening to kill yourself, and you are begging and pleading to have me back. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm with him on this. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. Yeah. All right. But there is little peace for him who is harassed by a king, which 10 out of 10 phrase. Yeah, good phrasing. There came presently to Lanfal's house those three barons from the court. These bade the knight forthwith to go to Arthur's presence and acquit him of this wrong against the queen. Lanfal went forth, now deeply in his own sorrow. Had any man slain him on the road, he would have counted him as friend. <laughs> this edgelord, holy shit. All right. I think he's just really depressed. Like, yeah, because his because his girl broke with <laughs> broke up with him. I'm not with him on the like bothering his ex thing, but like I get why he's feeling like real down. I get that. All right, okay. He's in a situation where that makes sense. That's fair. He got broken up with. And again, he has no money other than what she gives him. That's true. I see. I keep forgetting that part. Okay. He's also broke. He's also broke. Yes. Arthur looked upon his captive very evilly. That's a sentence you don't hear often. That's the literal line. Yep. Vassal, said he harshly, you have done me a bitter wrong. It was a foul deed to seek to shame me in this ugly fashion and to smirch the honor of the queen. Is it folly or lightness which leads you to boast of that lady, least of whom maidens is fairer and goes more richly than the queen? He's like repeating the insult. Lanfall protested that he had never set such shame upon his lord. Word by word, he told the tale of how he denied the queen within the orchard. So he's like, no, like, she actually asked me to sleep with her, and I said no. But concerning that which he had spoken of the lady, he owned the truth and his folly. And Arthur's like, no, look, the queen has, how do you say it? Droit de seigneur. She's allowed. She's allowed. I like that. That's a good phrase. What does it mean? There is a... It means, like, the right of the lord or something. Oh, yes. It's a myth that yep. the lord... How to phrase? It's it's like Prima Nocte from Braveheart, which never existed. The, the first yes, night... it's that. It's yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, like, the lord gets first dibs on your lady when you get yeah. married. It's gross. It's real gross. To my knowledge, this is not a real thing. 
Yeah, no. I just like the phrase, the Lord's right. I think that could be used for something else less gross. But anyway, so Landfall owns up to this. And he says, like, he's lost his love now, and it's his own fault, and he cares little for his life and was content to obey the judgment of the court. So he's lost everything, and he's like, I have nothing left, just kill me already, do whatever you want. Wrathful was the king at Lenfall's words. He conjured his barons, which, what a, what a vision. I yeah. like it. Yeah, that's good. That's fun. He conjured his barons to give him wise counsel so that wrong was done to none. The lords did the king's bidding, whether good came of the matter or evil. They gathered themselves together and appointed a certain day that Lanfall should abide by the judgment of his peers. For his part, Lanfall must give pledge and surety to his lord that he would come before this judgment in his own body. No shape-shifting allowed. If he might not give such surety, then he should be held captive still. So basically, don't run off, show up on your court date, that sort of thing. In his own body. In his own body, yep. As opposed to what? As opposed to not showing up at all or, like, sending a messenger. Oh, sur- okay. Like a surrogate, you know? You have to like, show up in person. Okay. In person, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, so do you do you work remote or, or in body? <laughs> do you work in your own body or do you <laughs> Skype in? Or do you Skype? Yeah. When the lords of the king's household returned to tell him of their counsel, Arthur demanded that Lonfall should put such a pledge in his hand... Lanfold did so, blah blah blah. He would have been sent in prison, but Gawain came first to offer himself as his surety and with him all the knights of his fellowship. Oh, I think what's going on is like you need to You know how sometimes people ask you for your credit like not your credit card, your your ID while you borrow mm-hmm. something and then you give it back and you swap it to make sure you come back because you need your ID. Hold on, there's a word for that. Yeah. I'll try to remember it. It's not a deposit. No, it's insurance. Collateral. Thank you, collateral. Yeah. Wait, so how does that apply here? Gawain's saying, like, I'll make this pledge, I'll make sure he shows up, blah, blah, blah. Oh, he's out on bail. Yeah, essentially. So Landfall goes home, they blamed him greatly because of his foolish love, and chastened him grievously by reason of the sorrow which he made before men. Every day they came to his chamber to know of, like, whether he's eating, for much they feared presently that he would become mad. Because the actual phrase here is to know of his meat and drink. But what that means is to make sure he's actually eating. Yeah, so they're basically like they're they're making sure he stays alive. But they're also like, get it together, man. You're yeah. acting ridiculous. And you made a really stupid decision when you said that shit to Guinevere. Yep. So the lords of the household came together on the day appointed for judgment. The king and the queen are there. And the shorties brought Lanfall within the hall and rendered him into the hands of his peers. <laughs> so, so, mm, sorry, the who brought Lanfall into the hall? Sureties, the S-U-R-E-T-I-E-S. It took me a second to realize what word you were saying because I heard it as shorties, like S-H-O-R-T-I-E-S. <laughs> so the shorties brought him in. <laughs> yeah. No, no, the sureties, the, the people who make sure you show up. <laughs> so anyway... They throw him in court, blah, blah, blah. And a great company of his fellowship, that is to say, a bunch of the other knights, did everything that they were able to to acquit him of this charge. When all was set out, the king demanded the judgment of the court. The barons went forth in much trouble and blah, blah, blah. They discuss among the jury. Now, while they were so perplexed, the Duke of Cornwall rose in council and said, Lords, the king pursues Lanfall as a traitor and would slay him by the sword, by reason that he bragged of the beauty of his maiden and roused the jealousy of the queen. By the faith that I owe this company, none complains of Lanfall, save only the king. 
For our part, we would know the truth of this business and do justice between the king and his man. We would also show proper reverence to our own liege lord. Now, if it be according to Arthur's will, let us take oath of Lanfall that he seek this lady, who has put much strife between him and the queen. If her beauty is as he has told us, the queen will have no cause for wrath. She must pardon Lanfall for his rudeness, since it will be plain that he did not speak out of malicious heart. Like, he didn't mean to insult you. Should Lanfall fail his word and not return with the lady, or should her fairness fall beneath his boast, let him be cast off from the fellowship and set forth in exile. I do want to point out that while it seems weird that he's being threatened with exile or death by sword for insulting the queen, that is, I think, technically a crime in many medieval countries. Yep. And still a couple of modern ones where it hasn't been taken yep. off the books. Yep. It's a les majeste. Yep. If you insult the monarch, mm -hmm. that's a crime. I think it's also still a thing, like, if you insult the Prime Minister of France, you can get jail time. For real? Yeah, I think so. Let me fact check this. Yeah, because I feel like I, I heard a lot of people saying some, some negative things about Macron. Yeah. French woman faces trial of 12,000 euro fine for insulting Macron on Facebook. Ridiculous. Yep. Oh, wow. I just, a map of the nations with, uh, with laws about this is... Extensive. Well, it's not hugely extensive, but there's more than I thought. It's like dotted, there are, there are like a dozen of them dotted all over Eurasia. Oof. Yeah, she was part of the Yellow Vest protests and stands kind of against Macron. So there was some political underlying reasons that they went after that one. Because I'm sure there are plenty of people who insult Macron. Yeah. But yeah, she stands accused of insulting the president of the republic. So there you go. Still France exists. isn't even highlighted on this map, so I guess that's a separate thing. Well, because you can't be killed for it, but you're fined. But there we go. Anyway, the more you know. All right. So Landfall essentially says, like, I don't know how I could do that. Like, she's not talking to, to me anymore. But the court sends him on, on his way. And the judges were about to give sentence upon Landfall when they saw two maidens come riding toward the palace upon two white ambling palfreys, which... Our horses. Our horses. They're not, like, it's not a specific type? I actually don't know. Hang on. A docile horse used for ordinary riding, especially by women. They're calm horses. They're ladies' horses. Just like the Bic pen for women. You know, I actually bought a bunch of those because they, they write really smoothly. Like, they're genuinely good pens. I can't believe you would do this and upset the gender binary like this. I think I have one. Like, yeah. <laughs> I got one right here. I, I liked the, like, purple swirlies all over it, and I thought it was cool, so I bought it. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, these actually write really well. Yeah. Anyway, if you haven't looked up the reviews for the Bic pen for women, it's really f***ing funny. You should. I didn't it's know really there were funny. reviews. Oh, no. It's like, it's like a whole thing. I just saw them in CVS one day. This was like 10 years ago, though. It's called Bic for Her, if that helps. Yep. It's the, the Bic for Her. Finally, pens for women. I don't know what I've been doing all my life writing with men's pens. It's been such a hassle. Originally, I went into the office supply store to grab some precise V7 pens, but when I saw these, I had to get them. The normal black pen casings are just so hard on the eyes. It was like a breath of fresh air to see lady-colored pens. For once, I don't have to grip a giant, man-sized pen just to sign receipts at Saks. 
and the ink just hits the paper so smoothly, not at all like the rough, gritty man ink in Bic's normal pens. My only complaint is that they're a bit finicky. When I was copying down recipes from my neighbor, it worked just fine, but as soon as I sat down with the bills, nothing! It wouldn't work! But that's okay, my woman brain just gets all muddled trying to figure out finances anyway. <laughs> God. There's, there's like thousands of reviews like this because everyone was like, what the f*** are you talking about? These are pens for women, for her. Maybe if they're sh- like shaped ergonomically, like a little bit smaller, because fountain pens are like that. There are some larger fountain pens that were made for men and some smaller fountain pens that were made for women. And like that I get, but they're very much pink coated and like very dainty and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's very like, really? Okay. So they they were slammed for that. But anyway, they're on... Horses for her, if you will. <laughs> Where were we? Um, palfreys, I assume. <laughs> palfreys, yes. I have to find it again. Hang on. Yes, okay. So these are the same two ladies with closely girded, you know, dresses and blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> then we get this other wonderful phrase. All men, old and young, looked willingly upon them, for fair they were to see. As opposed to unwillingly? <laughs> I guess. Just so you know, hypnosis not involved. They no. looked because they wanted to. They wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So any of the queer guild members out there, even they looked at these women. Gosh. All right. Gawain and three knights of his company went straight to Landfall and showed him these maidens. I don't know that they're, sh- they're showing them. Look! <laughs> Look at them! Look out the window, my guy! <laughs> We're only going to get through one of these because they're so f***ing ridiculous. Okay. I love this story. Look, Lanfall, the ladies are here. <laughs> which is which is great. And so, yeah, so his buddies force him to look out the window. And they're like, which one of them is your lady? Like, which one of them is your girl? But he answered not a word. The maidens dismounted and coming before the dais where the king was seated, spake to him. Sir, prepare now a chamber hung with silken claws, where it is seemly for my lady to dwell, for she would like to lodge with you a while. The king granted this gladly. He called him two knights of his household and bade them bestow the maidens with such chambers. The maidens were gone, and the king required his barons to proceed with their judgment, saying that he had sore displeasure at the slowness of all of this. So they're still debating all of this. They don't know what to do. And from the midst of all the noise and tumult, there came two other damsels riding into the hall on Spanish mules. It's very specific here. Very richly arrayed were these damsels and their kirtles were covered by such fair mantles embroidered with gold. Great joy had Lanfell's comrades when they marked these ladies. And they said between themselves that doubtless they came for the succor of the good knight. That's S-U-C-C-O-R. Yes, they're, they're not going calling to him, him a sucker. <laughs> yes, they're gonna help. They're gonna help Landfall. And so, for the love of God, Landfall, which one of these is your friend? But Landfall answered very simply that he'd never seen these damsels before, and he'd never loved either of them. And the maidens dismounted and stood before Arthur. I like that they're just assuming like these women are so hot. Clearly, they're, they're the first. <laughs> they're so one, of, hot. one of them must be the one Landfall was talking about. Yeah, He's seriously. Like, no, no, no. Yes. So. Greatly were these women praised by many because of their beauty and of the color of their face and hair. Some were there who deemed that already the queen was outdone. The elder of the damsels carried herself modestly and well and told her message as such. How do they always know? 
That's a good point. They like, always I'm, know. They're always like, oh, okay, that's the older. How? How can you tell? Maybe there's a rule that the eldest speaks first. Maybe. I don't know. But anyway. I don't know. I feel like if it's just the author wanting to distinguish between the two, you could give them like different hair colors or something and go yeah, like the brunette. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, she says, hey, we want Chambers too. The king does so. And then they're like, okay, back to this landfall case. Why do we keep getting interrupted by random hot women? <laughs> by these hot women. <laughs> All right. Now the judges were about to proclaim their sentence when, amidst the tumult of the town, there came riding into the palace the flower of all the ladies of the world. Which, what a title. I like yeah. that. Yeah. That's definitely, that's definitely a title. She came mounted upon a palfrey white as snow, which carried her softly, as though she loved her burden. Beneath the sky was no godlier a steed, nor a more gentler one. The harness of the palfrey was so rich that no king on earth might hope to buy the trappings unless he sold his realm and pledge. Again, again. So now we get another wonderful description of the lady. Passing slim was the lady, sweet of bodice and slender of girdle. Her throat was whiter than snow on branch, and her eyes were like flowers in the pallor of her face. So she's not flushed anymore. They were like flowers in that they attracted bees. That'd be cool, though. Honeybees all around you. That'd be fun. She had a witching mouth, a dainty nose, and an open brow. Her eyebrows were brown, and her golden hair parted in two soft waves upon her head. She was clad in a shift of spotless linen, and rode at a slow pace through the streets of the city. There was none, neither great nor small, youth nor sergeant, but ran forth from his house that he might content his heart with so great beauty. Every man that saw her with his eyes marveled at a fairness beyond that of any earthly woman. Little he cared for any mortal maiden, after he beheld this sight, the friends of Sir Lenfell hastened to the knight to tell him of this lady. Sir Comrade, is this not your friend? This lady is neither black nor golden, mean nor tall. She is the most lovely thing in all the world. What? Hold on. Yeah. Back up. First yep. of all, okay, witching mouth, like that. Second of all, what was that the knights just said? Yeah. 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 She's neither what, nor what, nor what, nor what. Are these all meant to be bad things? <laughs> no, not all of them. This lady is neither black nor golden, mean nor tall. Oh, I see. She is yeah. neither dark-haired Swarthy. nor fair-haired, yeah. neither short nor, nor tall. Nor tall. She's, she is the most beautiful just, thing in the world. She's like the platonic ideal of a woman. She does not fall into any of these extremes. Yes. By my faith, cried he. Yes, this is indeed my my friend. I like how like throughout this whole thing, it's my friend, and then sometimes my lady. Yeah, I've got a, I've, I've got questions about this uh, this translation. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, they just said she had golden hair, though. Yes. So it is incorrect that she is neither black nor golden. I mean, she's not like overly golden. She's not full platinum blonde. I don't know. Maybe she's a strawberry blonde. Well, it does say her eyebrows are brown. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it is a small matter now whether men slay me or set me free. I am made whole just by looking at her face. So, Landfall goes full simp, and the maiden enters the palace, where none so fair had come before, and stood before the king in the presence of the household. She loosed the clasp on her mantle, so that men might more easily perceive the grace of her person. The courteous king advanced to meet her, and all the court got to their feet. And the lady doesn't really like public speaking. I think she's got a phobia of it. Because when the lords had gazed upon her and praised the sum of her beauty, the lady spoke to Arthur in this fashion, for she was anxious to be gone. 
Sire, I have loved one of thy vassals, the knight who stands in bonds, Sir Lanfall. He was always misprized in your court, and every action has been turned to blame. What he said that you know. Sorry, I'm trying not to do the whole thee and thou because it's using the formal here. It's actually, oh, well, I want to point out. Yep. Not. You is the formal. Thou is, is the in The familiar. Yes. I'm not sure whether our translator knew that at this point. Yeah, either our translator is screwing it up and deliberately archaizing badly, or... She's speaking very freshly. She's speaking down to the king, basically. Yeah. Which, if she's a fairy, like, fine, yeah, that's yeah, might honestly as well. fair. Future Mac here. I checked the original. And she is using to instead of vu, which, while again, I do not speak old French, I'm pretty sure that to is the familiar form. So translating it as thee and thou is accurate. It just sounds strange to modern ears because we don't really use that anymore. Over hasty was his tongue before the queen. But he never craved her in love, however loud his boasting. I cannot choose that he should come to hurt or harm by me. In the hope of freeing Landfall from his bonds, I have obeyed thy summons. Let now the barons look boldly upon my face and deal justly in this quarrel between the queen and me. The king commanded that this should be done, and looking upon her eyes, not one of the judges, but was persuaded in her favor that her beauty exceeded that of the queen. Love that this trial is being resolved by beauty pageant. It's great. Love it, actually. <laughs> and I'll get into why in a minute, because we're at the very end. Since then, Sir Lenfell has not spoken in malice against his lady. The lords of the household gave him again his sword. That is to say, like, since he since he did not actually, like, speak down on the queen, it wasn't an insult, it was fact, he gets his knighthood back. Also love that it has now been, like, legally established yep. that... No, she is hotter than you, your majesty. Sorry, that wasn't slander. Therefore, yep. he's fine. Therefore, he's fine. Yeah. It's like a way pettier version of the thing with... Who was it? Marine Le Pen, I think. Oh, yeah. Someone it's called her a fascist. It's true. And she was like, that's slander. And the courts were like, well, you are. So <laughs> That's amazing, actually. <laughs> so it's actually fine. When the trial had thus come to an end, the maiden took her leave of the king and made ready to depart. Arthur would have had her lodge with him for a little, especially because they, like, prepped rooms, and many a lord would have rejoiced in her service, but she decided not to tarry. I just had you prep those rooms as, like, a, a showcase, so I could stand in them for a moment, and you could admire me, but then I'm Yeah, <laughs> basically. But also, like, I get it, like, it's, it's real crafty of her, because she's like, I'll send some of my ladies, because I know they're hotter than the queen, and I'll do that as, like, a prep to how hot I am actually am you know she's gonna rub it in a little bit actually you know i bet the rooms are just a power move she probably never even looked at them probably now outside the hall stood a great stone of dull marble where it was the want of lords departing from the court to climb to saddle and landfall stood by the stone so that it's a mounting block yeah the maiden came forth from the doors of the palace and mounting on the stone seated herself on the palfrey beside her friend then they rode across the plain together and were seen no more the Bretons tell that the knight was re That's a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Please read the phrase. The Bretons tell that the knight was ravished by his lady to an island. Yeah, he was. Very dim and very far, known as Avalon. But none has had speech with Lanfall and his fairy love since then, and for my part, I can tell you no more of the matter. 
The end. I'm going to assume this is the more like kidnappy. What I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. The kidnappy definition Ravish. of this term. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. was which, whisked which away. Has... <laughs> but he was probably also ravaged. Which has come up before when we talk about Hades and Persephone. Yeah, the the rape of the Sabines or the rape of Persephone. It's not a literal rape. It is a kidnapping. Right. That's that's the old old, old usage term. of that term. Yep. He was probably also ravished by him yeah. in the new usage of that term, yeah. one assumes. Yeah, I would assume so, definitely. But like after they got there. Yeah. And that is the tale of Sir Landfall. I, I had expected that we would get to at least one more of these stories since they're relatively short. But th- there's just so much here. Yeah, I mean, it's a ridiculous story. There is a lot to talk there's about. There's a lot to cover. So shall we jump straight into our segments then? Yeah, uh, hold on. Question first. Yes. I could have sworn that Landfall's, quote, friend, unquote, had a name in the version I read. Was She was called Triamore. Where did that go? I don't think I've ever heard that. Okay, hold on. I got it. I got it. Oh, okay. Okay, apparently this is the Middle English version. There we go. Okay. Okay. This is a different version of the text that is from... Got it. The late 14th century. So after Marie. Yes, it's written in Middle English, which is why I remember reading this in Middle English, even though Marie de France wrote in Anglo-Norman. So the version I read was the one written by Thomas Chester, and it calls her Dame Triamore. Ah, Triamore. As in, like, three loves? Yeah. I see. Very nice. What are the three loves? Body, soul, spirit? I don't know. I assumed it was just a Trinity thing, but... Oh, Maybe. Of course they make it a trinity thing. Okay, yeah, reading the summary, I'm like, okay, there are also plot elements in that one that aren't in this one that I I remember. Ah, that makes sense. I've read a different version of this, which is why I was occasionally taken aback. Yes, this one's a bit funny. All right, jumping into our our segments? Yes. What say you? What What is the best dialogue here? I think you know little of women and their love. There are sins more black that a man might have upon his soul. You know what? I I would say yes. I would say that it's is the brutal. best dialogue. It's horrible. If you make it a literal dialogue and include Lanfall's response that he is not of that guild. Yes. I think yes. that exchange is the best dialogue. That's our best dialogue. 100%. All right. What can we use for D&D? All right. I have a minor random thing and also a thing to annoy your players. Ooh, let's go. As a, like, item of treasure. A pavilion that is worth more than the kingdom's GDP. Oh my gosh. How would you even do that? The only important thing is that it is worth a ridiculous amount and that it is enchanted so you can't break it up and sell the pieces. Because then they have something that is, like, the most valuable thing in the world, and there's nothing you can do with it. Because there's no one who can afford to buy it from you. It's just their pavilion. They just get bragging rights that they, if the party gets it, they have the the richest pavilion in the world. Right. And I feel like that would drive them insane. Because, like, especially if you give it to them at a time when they don't have a lot of income. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And they're like, can, can we, like, cut off one of the jewels? And you're like, no, it's enchanted, man. Yeah. It's, you just can't. The whole thing. See, but I feel like this would be really, really cool in terms of, like, oh, we can trade our pavilion to a dragon for knowledge in exchange for it not killing us. Because I, I feel like right. a dragon would want that. 
Like, I feel like what would eventually happen would be they'd, like, trade or sell it for something, but you'd have to emphasize repeatedly right. that, like, oh, you're you're getting a bad deal. This is way less than it's worth. Oh, I don't know, guys. Like, you really want to make this trade? Yeah. Okay, all right. If you want. Just because they want to get rid of it. They're like, this stupid pavilion. I like, like you it. you got to get something out of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like it. Oh, and I also like the idea of a king conjuring his barons. I think, yes. like, summon vassals should be a spell where the king can just, like, I don't know, throw some incense in a brazier or something, and his, his lords just kind of appear out of smoke <laughs> around him. I love that. That's so fun. I think that would be a fun spell to have. Especially if it's, like, in the middle of whatever they're doing. Yeah. Just... They, they don't. They don't get a, a warning. They no, no, no warning. No, like I was in the shower, my lord. We've invented showers. Why haven't you told me about this? <laughs> the bath, whatever. <laughs> I love that. I mean, they probably had some kind of equivalent. I'm sure. Probably. I really like the idea of a, like a secret fairy love. Like, what if you made this kind of a deal with your warlock patron, or maybe the party as a whole makes a deal with some secret entity. That they get XYZ in exchange for something, but they can't tell anybody. And nobody else can see them or show up. Because there's bound to be somebody in the party who just, their temper is short, something happens, and will they tow that line? Like, what a great challenge. I think it also works if you give it to one specific character. Mm. And you make the added stipulation that... You can't even talk about it out of character. Oh. Like, not only can you your character not tell the other PCs, you can't tell you the can't. other players. That's pretty fun. You need to have the right player to be on board with that. But if they're on board yeah. with it, that's really funny. Because, like, with the whole, like, I can't, like, show up if anyone else is around thing. Like, they'd have to be constantly sneaking off and being like, I can't tell you what I'm doing. I can't tell you. I'll, I'll text the DM. Yeah. Oh, no. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I feel like that would be pretty fun to do. It might get a little bit ridiculous, but if every single person in the party had that, they all were holding on to the secret and they thought they were the only one. Yeah. That could be really fun. It could also go very wrong. So take that with, you know. I think what you'd have to do is have some kind of, if you wanted to do it with everyone, you'd have to have some kind of campaign with a lot of intrigue where like the players are already associated with different factions and there's like a reason they might be sneaking around. Yep. So that none of them are like, hold on, I have to sneak off to do stuff. You have to sneak you off. You have to sneak stuff. off. We're yeah. probably doing the same thing. But like, if if there's a genuine reason for them to suspect that the other players are mm-hmm. doing something sketchy, then they might miss that. One hundred percent. I also really like the idea that somewhere in in court, these two women are bickering about who's more beautiful like just the triangle of like cheat with me uh no i i I can't i'm i'm more in love like that whole argument i think is a really great either npc moment or like role play moment where the players can get involved i don't know i feel like there's something there um let's see what else trial resolved by beauty pageant yeah role for charisma i guess like how pretty are you that could be fun yeah, I know I know charisma and physical appearance don't exactly map, but like right. I feel like presentation and force of personality are part of that kind of yeah. like contest anyway, so it yeah. still does. You said something a moment ago when we were actually in the story that like you liked the beauty pageant ending for some Oh, that's reason. right. And did did you want to get into that here or later? Sure. I, no, I can I can do it here. Well, I really like it because it's so 
it kind of fits this idea of feminine power that this woman shows up and she's beautiful and she's holding all the men, presumably, in this court by her presence and her beauty and just who she is as an individual. And I think in an age where strong female character usually turns into like woman with a sword or like a dude hero, but with tits, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I like seeing this kind of subverted in a way. The one downside to this is that it does put the queen in the villain character so that it's a woman pitched against a woman and this guy is caught in the middle. Because very obviously, like, Landfall is not really the hero in this story. Like, the lady is. So, no points for that. But I do like that Landfall isn't the one doing any heroing here. It is just the lady. And we don't get to see that a lot. So I I really like that. And I think it's a good example of, like, feminine or female power in a traditionally feminine sense. She gets to be the one riding to the rescue, but she is doing it in a... In in a very, like, traditionally feminine man. Yeah. She does not have to in any way give up her femininity to take that role. To take that power, yeah. And I really like that. I can see that, yeah. Yeah. The other idea that I had for D&D was a queer guild. Yeah. Okay. How would that work? I have no idea. <laughs> but I like it. I don't know. I don't know. Like... <laughs> I mean, traditionally, a guild does some sort of trade that brings right. in money to finance right. the guild. Maybe it's drag shows. <laughs> Maybe it's an entertainer's guild. All right, all right. You know, like like gay clubs, drag shows. But there's also maybe like a community service aspect to it. Like, yes, we we do these shows and that helps, you know, the kids who come from homes. Like, we give them a place to stay in our guild headquarters. Like, you can grow up with a supportive community here. We have the medicines you need. We have the magic you need. It's just like an inclusive environment that, like, gives back to the community and serves as a safe space for those in a world where they might not have access to that. Yeah, you know, I was going to say that this sounds like more of a modern thing, but honestly, what it reminds me of is that convent we were talking yeah. about in in the first Pride episode. Yes, 100%. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very similar kind of thing, where it's like, yeah, you know, this is this is a, a lifestyle or a profession or whatever that's like kind of, society isn't like a fan of it, but like, yeah. here's a space where you can be that allows you to still be like a member of society in a way that's safe for you. and Yeah, and accepted. Yeah. Yeah, you have a community. Right. I like it. I think that could be really fun. Yeah, I th- that's definitely something you could you could blend in with like the sex worker convent we talked about. Yeah. I guess it's more than a month ago by the time this episode airs. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I like that. The idea of a queer guild, guild of queers. Think about the decorations. What a fun space to be in. Ugh. I feel like that's probably a stereotype. I don't know. Every single like queer individual that I've met has always had a wonderful sense of style, like unique sense of style. I'm not talking like the amazing like drag sense of style on, you know, in queer clubs and drag shows. But like, that's part of it. But there's also, you know, your cottagecore lesbians or like your aces who are just super into like the goth punk scene. I don't know, like every, I just, there's so much unique exploration of self and fashion. Yeah, I was gonna say, I guess, I suppose you might see it as like a self-expression kind yeah. of thing. 
Yeah, okay. that's what I mean. Right. I don't. I don't mean like the flamboyant gay stereotype. I mean like what a cool space to be in because it's a space that you can make incredibly representative for yourself. Fair. Yeah. Okay. That's what I had for D and D. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over? Modern culture. I think this is kind of an inversion of the damsel in distress trope that we see a lot of the time. Yeah. Which is fun, because this is the original. Yeah, okay. I'll give it that. I mean, I feel like this isn't a very well-known one, so like the only like effect it's had on modern culture is the one that we're going to cover in the Tolkien tally. What's the one we're going to cover in the Tolkien tally? Tolkien tally. Oh, there's just that the fairies are more like Tolkien's elves than oh. like the little Victorian flitter things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because Tolkien probably read this. Oh, I'm sure he read this. 100%. He probably translated the thing. Yeah, for that matter, you could add that like this is probably something that he had in mind when he w- was talking about his ideas of like how storytelling should include eucatastrophe and acts yep. of grace. Yeah, 100%. 100%. For those not familiar with the term eucatastrophe, it's a term that I really like, is the sudden turn in a story where you know that it's going to have a happy ending. It's when, when all things turn to good after like that sense of hopelessness and despair. It's the climax of the story where you know it's going to end happily. Yeah. Yeah, which is something I've only heard Tolkien about, talk about, because that's not like a, a very common thing in storytelling to have like Mm-mm. the moment where suddenly everything goes right. No. Like, that's not seen as a standard thing. Uh-uh. But I think it's very, very powerful in the way that Tolkien uses it. And I think it's a, a useful story moment mm-hmm. that you can include even in games. Yeah. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Terminology. Palfreys. Yeah. Palfreys is a good term. Horses for her. Yep. Calm and gentle. Sucker. S-U-C-C-O-R. Yes. Sucker. I feel like that one's fairly widely known, but yes. Yeah. There's also Perron. P-E-R-R-O-N. An exterior set of steps and platform at the main entrance to a large building, such as a church or mansion. So like, you know where you take pictures outside of a church in front of the door on those little sets of steps? That's a Perron. You know, most people would just call that like a porch. Yeah. Or an, an, I guess a porch entrance. A porch is covered. But there you go, Perrin. Okay, Perrin. What was that other one? The Saison? Oh, the... I forgot that I was reading the whole thing and not just this particular lay, so I have to actually find this particular word and I can't find it because I can't spell it. Ah! I got it. Oh, perfect. It's S-E-I-S-I-N. I don't know how to say it. Saison? Ah, season, yeah. Saison? Yeah, Saison? Possession, usually of land by a freehold, but I guess in, in this context, of body. Possession of body. There's also some, like, various, like, material culture terms that are in here. Mm-hmm. Well, there was also the ones you thought was shorty. Right, the sureties. The sureties, yes, the sureties. The people who make sure you show up at court. Yeah. I was thinking stuff like when they're describing the pavilion, there's, like, uh... Napery. Oh, yeah. And there's Which I'm now looking up because I don't know what that is. Mm, Google says napery is linen used for household purposes. Oh, well, there you go. The sentence is, she lay upon a bed with napery and coverlet of richer worth. Mm, yep. So like, linen, napery. Yeah, there you go. Ermine. That's an animal. It is an animal. Yeah, I don't know if people are familiar with ermines. 
They're like weasels, and yeah. they're, you know those cartoon kings that have, like, white fur with black spots, spots. on their robes? That's ermine. That's ermine. That's ermine fur. And the reason that that's important here is that to say that she's dressed in ermine is saying she's wearing something that only the king would be allowed to wear, as we've talked about some Shure laws before. Yeah, beside it being expensive, it's often restricted. Mm-hmm. Oh, demoiselle. Ooh, that's a good one. Which just means a young woman, but it's like very respectful, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. But I do know that it is where we get the English word damsel. Ah, that makes sense. Please don't use the phrase, like, at their pleasure. Yeah. That's not one you want to bring back. No one should be taking their pleasure in the forest. I'm sorry. You've got to phrase that differently. Like, it's not not what you want to say. Street smarts. What are we learning here? Don't be a nice guy. In, like, the nice guy TM way. Like, if a lady rejects you, it's okay to be upset, but maybe don't, like plead to her and like yeah like have have a moment be upset but don't like inflict it upon her yeah don't drag her into this when you when you break her boundaries yeah i want to say that like the lesson is snitches get stitches but in fact lanfal is rescued so he does not get stitches yeah i feel like there's a lesson to be learned here about the queen like don't be a prissy karen she got rejected and yeah. then decides to take this guy to court because of it. She's also exhibiting really bad, like, nice girl behavior. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. There's a Reddit okay. for it. Yep. I'm not sure there's a Reddit for it tells me much about whether it's real. That's true. It's I don't know which is more insidious. I think both, like, nice guy and nice girl behavior is equal. It can be as equally harmful and insidious because... One of the responses that I have seen to a chick getting rejected is, oh, you must be gay. And that's exactly what the queen does here. Hmm. Like, I've seen that happen. There's your echoes in modern culture. Interesting that that has such antiquity. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, for, for dudes, it's, oh, you rejected me? Well, you're not that hot anyway. And for chicks, it's, oh, you rejected me? Oh, you must be gay. What if you're a woman and you reject her? Does she say you must be straight? Well, then, I mean, then you have to, like, move out and get the (laughs) (laughs) U-Haul. At that point, it's too late. Fair. All right. Other lessons. I mean, okay, don't insult the queen. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. Also, don't break your lady's boundaries. The quickest way to having an ex. Avoid setting up a scenario where people have to decide whether you or another woman are hotter. Yeah. That is going to go badly for someone. It did not go well at Troy. It did not go well here. Horrible. Like, at the very least, you are now, like, the court-mandated less attractive person. Do you want that for yourself? That's real bad, actually. Legally, you are not the hottest in the realm. Did you really want to know that? Right. There are some questions you don't want answered. Maybe this is what that queen in Snow White was trying to avoid. Maybe. I mean, she's the one who asked the mirror in the first place. Yeah, she's just making sure. Like she's, Oh, okay, I, I get that. She wants to make sure that if that ever comes up, she's going to win. She's going to win. She has to win. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. I can see that. All right. Best moment. I think the best moment might just be the concept and the phrasing with the the bearing of the meats 
Just because, like, <laughs> this woman is lying in this pavilion, dressed, like, so richly, but she's also unbuttoned herself enough to where she's got tasteful side boob. And then on top of that, we get this whole, like, damsels, bear me the meats. Like, it's just so... Everything on top of everything else. And this is all happening while Landfall was like, I'm gonna take a nap. And this lady's like, I want that himbo in my life. I do think that that initial, like, meeting is the best moment. It's the best. And I would also add a reason it's also good is that this is a deeply suspicious scenario. Yes. But Landfall is so, like, blinded by the cleavage that he does not question why this woman, like, knows his name, what she wants, what her deal is. She's just like, hey, Landfall Smith of 41 Oak Street. Yeah. Would you like to be my sugar baby? And he's like, <laughs> yes? <laughs> I absolutely would. This can't go wrong in any way. <laughs> Which, again, to be fair, that was the correct decision, but that's also wild that that happened. It's crazy. I love it. Okay, best moment. Easy. Done. Final rating. All right, there's so much about this that is goofy, but there's also a lot about it that's really good. Mm -hmm. And I think it gives us some stuff that we don't often get in this I don't want to say genre because like it's a Breton lay and like we I don't I'm not actually super familiar with those other than like three of them. Yeah. Well, we can we can put it in the overall chivalric category. Chivalric adventure, chivalric It romance. gives us some stuff we don't get in chivalric literature a lot. Yeah. So while it's kind of ridiculous in many ways, I also kind of like it when texts are ridiculous and it is doing some interesting things. So I'm going to go ahead and give it I want to give it an 8 and a half. All right, 8 and a half. Pretty high, pretty high. You know what? I am going to give it the rare nine and a half to even us out at the solid nine. Because this is one of those texts that to me, like, I like seeing that feminine power. I like seeing, you know, some some undertones of queerness, both positive and negative in this tale. But it's it's interesting to see. It's funny. It's short. It's easy to read. You can pick up a copy of this text and just blitz through it. You're laughing. You can understand it. It's not too difficult for the reader to like interpret aside from, you know, some archaic words, but even those are funny, you know, like bear the meats. Like it, it gives me the same vibe as the, like she breasted boobily down the stairs, <laughs> you know, like I just love it. It's fun. So I don't know this one. I don't feel like it has that much problematic in it. Maybe I'm blinded here. Call me out if I am, but 9.5. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. So, overall, solid 9. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. Alright, so this is from Leech Book 2, Chapter 65, Bullet Point 3. Ooh, okay. Into the weeds. For the yellow disease. Don't know. Jaundice, maybe? Jaundice? I was thinking, like, yellow fever? Why is it called that? I gotta look it up now. Yeah, apparently you go yellow. It says it's more common in the tropics and subtropics, no, so I'm not sure. Oh, but a lot of these are classical sources from, say... from the Mediterranean, so it might have been imported. And, like, they don't know what they're talking about. But Yeah. Oh, it's called yellow fever because it causes jaundice, which is when your yep. skin turns yellow because of liver problems. Got it. Okay. So maybe. 
Or any anything that has that livery effect. <laughs> For that, take the netherward part of Helenium, which is a plant. Contrive that thou mayest have it on the previous day. So, time travel. What the f*** does that mean? <laughs> I know! <laughs> Contrive to have it on the previous day? Yeah, time travel. <laughs> like, I don't know of any other way to interpret that. I have no, I have no idea. Yeah, right? I don't know what else to do with that. Alright. This is a doctor handing you medicine and saying, figure out how to take this yesterday. Holy crap. Maybe it means, like, have some of the plant on hand. I mean, possibly. Maybe? Yes, possibly this means make sure you've already got it. Oh. Or, like, make sure you've, you've, you've had it, you have it by the time you get started. I don't know. That's so dumb. All right. But anyway, when first thou usest it yesterday, take three pieces in the morning and three at night, and they shall be bits of it sliced into honey. And the second morning, four pieces and four at night. And the third morning, five pieces and five at night. And the fourth morning, six and six at night. So that is how you cure the yellow disease. All right. I wonder, like, if that root has any way to, like, help the liver out. Possibly. Huh. Anyway. All right. It does keep going. We've got a few different cures here. The following drink shall avail for the same. Take Alexander's, which is another plant, and groundsel, also a plant. Pound them small and form them into a potion in clear ale. I love when they use the word potion. That just makes me happy. Yeah, that's good. Presumably you then drink it, but we don't know because it now shifts its topic real quick. If a man have sudden ailments, make three marks of Christ. One on the tongue, the second on the head, the third upon the breast. Soon he will be well. Huh. To keep the body in health with prayer to the Lord, this is a noble leechdom. So take note. Oh, here we go. Take myrrh and rub it into wine, so much as may be a good stoopful. That's S-T-O-U-P. It's a container you hold beverages in. And let the man take it at night fasting, and again when he will rest. That wonderfully upholdeth the health of the body. And it also is efficacious against the evil temptings of the fiend. Ooh. <laughs> That's the end of our leechdom. All the temptings. The evil temptings. The evil temptings. I know, but like, are we talking like the lustful temptings, the prideful temptings, all of the temptings? All of the temptings. Well, there you go. So, <laughs> hmm. if you have jaundice, take medicine yesterday, or yeah. you can drink stuff in beer. If you're suddenly feeling ill, draw a cross on your tongue. Yeah. And if you eat myrrh, you're immune to the temptings of the fiend. Pro tips. Better than sapphire. <laughs> That's true. Better than the sapphire. So, there you go. All right. <laughs> the consistently moist sapphire. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and if anyone figures out how to contrive a plant yesterday, let us know. I'm going to be puzzling over that one. That's gotta be a translation thing, but like, I can't figure out for what. I might have to check. You should. That's hilarious. Future Mac here. The original says, On Tham Forman Die, which could also be translated on the earliest day. So it would probably be more reasonable to interpret this as meaning, do this as soon as possible, try to catch the disease early, rather than employ time travel, and take medicine yesterday. All right. Well, with that, listeners, we bid you adieu 
and we will return to the stories of Landfall. Well, I guess not Landfall, his is done, but other tales of Marie de France later. And have a wonderful rest of your day. She's very good, Marie de France. She is. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I saw I saw a meme about Vise Clavre like last week. Peak. It was, Peak. It, it, it was one of those like expanding brain memes. Oh, uh, about, yes. About the identity of the king in Vise Clavre. Oh. And the first one is like, he's just a generic king. And let me see if I can find it, actually, so I can... Because reading out a meme in audio form is always funny. Oh, Lord, here we go. Broke to woke to bespoke, if you will. Wait, I think I reblogged it on our Tumblr. I'll just go there. Oh, perfect. I'll wait for you to do that. Yeah, this is, this is, this is excellent content. We're doing so good. <laughs> so it's one of those expanding brain ones, and it, it goes like this. I'm, I'm going to translate it to broke, woke, bespoke, and whatever comes after bespoke, because there are four. Is there... Well, there are four in this. Ah, I see. I don't know what comes after bespoke, so we'll just say ultra bespoke. Yeah. Uh, so broke. The king in Beast Clavre is a generic medieval king. Woke. The king in Beast Clavre is Arthur, by analogy with Melian and other character names. Makes sense. Bespoke. The king in Beast Clavre is an idealized chivalric concept. Ultra bespoke. The king in Beast Clavre is an imposter and a fraud because there was never a king of Brittany. Oh, ooh, I like that. There was never a king of Brittany. No, there wasn't. Very nice. Very nice.